Good morning. I'm Joel Dykstra, and today we will be reading from Colossians 3, 12 through 17, and Colossians 4, 2 through 4, which can be found on page 984 and 985. Colossians 3, 12 through 17, and Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And four, two through four. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Joel. Good morning. All right, like you, I absolutely want to make the best use of this time, and I've been praying how to do it. So here's what I'm thinking. This side over here, you're going to be praying for Mahomes' ankle, Kelsey's back, Chris Jones, three sacks, all right? For the next half hour, go. Some of you are going, that would be a better use of time. That's very hurtful. But uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I was really blessed this week. Uh, I got to um, be with some friends in Fort Lauderdale this week, and I want to show you a picture of a friend that I was with on Monday night. And uh, this is Maxim, and he uh, is an amazing brother. Uh, he preached last Sunday in his church, and uh, then he took a car to a train station, took a train station to an airport, and then flew to Fort Lauderdale, and we got to eat together on Monday night. Uh, his church is unusual uh, because they meet in the basement. He has a beautiful upstairs, but they meet in the basement because his church is right by the front lines in Ukraine. And this man leads a tremendous gospel-centric work right by the front lines of the war. And the stories that he has to tell were incredible. And this week, as I was thinking more and more about those four things that Chris just talked about, uh, prayer and the word and fellowship, and I, it's, it was just so real just to hear this man talk about the way that they express those things. And the way that those things play out in their lives. And so it was with that that just more and more just deeply in my heart. Just how blessed we are. But how these things have absolutely got to be practiced. Because they are absolutely the agents of transformation. And as you hear these stories from the Ukraine. You're aware of the fact that these aren't just, these aren't just platitudes. These are deep truths that they're holding on to. Uh, to give them hope in the midst of the worst possible situation that we could ever imagine. He had stories. I, I have not heard it all on the news, 
which are heartbreaking. And he, he was heartbroken. He was heartbroken. He said, I never thought in my life as a pastor I would be praying for weapons. He said, do you know how hard that is? Do you know how painful that is? Uh, but it was a powerful time. So just kind of with that in mind, I'd like to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the text here. Father, we do thank you for the church and, the, and uh, Lord, just on the front lines um, of this war. We pray for those, uh, those pastors in Ukraine that they would faithfully continue to preach the gospel. And we know that they meet, in, Lord, in these basements because those, those are where the bomb shelters are. Uh, they have, might have a nice upstairs, but they can never take the risk of being there. And it just reminds us how blessed we are just to be able to come here and to not have the fear of, of uh, bombs or being attacked or death. We can come here and just openly worship you. What an incredible gift. Father, we're asking now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts, that we would hear from you. We pray that this word would stir in us deeply, that it would bring, by your Holy Spirit, deep life transformation. We trust you for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we come to this passage, and it's, it's a great story because it's a great book of the Bible. And so Paul is in prison, and as he's in prison, he hears the fact that there are some people that have gone to this church and begin to preach a different Christ. And so they have been saying, hey, there's somebody that you need to really depend on, and it's not Jesus. And so Paul writes to them to essentially try to straighten some, some things out. And it's just, it's just the fact that he hears it, and he wants to pour his life into them. So he actually writes a bunch of letters, and he's got some friends there, and he says, okay, take this one to the church at Colossae, take this one to the Ephesians, and take this letter to my friend uh, over here. And so, and so this this amazing message begins to take place. And so he's got this theme in this chapter of we're going to take some things off and we're going to put some things on. And so Chris has been, you've heard about, we're going to take these things off, anger, rage, malice, and slander, and just this awful language, and we're going to start to put some things on. So there, there is very much a closed theme. So I want to look at this passage because I think that there is a closed theme actually all throughout Scripture, as you'll see. And so here's what we're going to uh, just walk through. We're going to walk through the wardrobe of walking after Jesus, and then the garments of transformation, and then the clothes of godly grace. So first of all, the wardrobe of just trying to walk after Jesus and be his people. I love the fact the way that he starts, because he starts this so tenderly because he knows he's going to say some things that I want you to do. These might be some hard things. So I'm just going to encourage you. It's like saying, sweetheart, you know what, baby? You know, kids, I love you so much, but here's some things that you have to do. He starts off and he says, listen, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved. Hey, listen, I love you. I chose you. You're a holy people. What tender words just to start this section with. It's a lot like actually Peter. He says things a lot like this in, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. Actually, First Peter, he says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You belong to the Lord. And so he says, so listen, chosen by God, full of the Spirit, in this life of love, I want you to hear some things that you need to do. Here's the wardrobe that God has picked out for you. I can think back to when I was a small child and 
Actually, it probably lasted a lot longer for me than most kids. It was probably up through high school, my mom saying, don't wear that, don't clash those things. You should probably wear this. Um, God is just saying, hey, here's the wardrobe that I have picked out for you. And so he gives us this list of things, um, which is so very, very powerful. He says, first of all, you need to have compassionate hearts. Because when God shows compassion, it's radical. Because back then, to have compassion was not viewed as actually a really good thing. It was viewed as weakness. And yet God is making very clear that he's a compassionate God. Lamentations 3 says God is full of compassion, right? He is absolutely a compassionate God. The Lord's amazing love indeed will never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Which basically says God loves me. God cares for me. God will never leave me. Those are three truths that you can hold on to every day. You can just wake up and say, okay, this day, God loves me. God cares for me. God will never leave me. And so we are called to show compassion to others. Do we show compassion so that people might come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? That might be a reason on down the line, but we first of all show compassion because all people have been created in God's image. That's why we show compassion to anybody because all people are worthy of respect because all people have been created in God's image. Many, many have strayed far away from that, but we show compassion and respect and love primarily because all people have been created in God's image. We're called to be kind. That is goodness with some patience. We need more kindness in the world. Everybody would agree. And just to find more ways, just day by day, just to show kindness to, to, to actually each other. To be humble. God becoming man is the ultimate act of humility. Because everything we have is from God alone. And when we acknowledge that, we can be more and more humble. We begin to have pride when we say, I have what I have because I have worked hard. Because I've done these things. But when we truly understand that everything we have is by God's gracious hand, it is very, very humbling. He calls us to be gentle, which doesn't mean weakness. It means strength under control. Jesus was very, very gentle. He was meek. That does not mean at all weakness. It means that he had all the power, but it was harnessed. It was always under control. And so we need to be those people that are gentle. We need to have patience, which means that we're constantly enduring wrongs. And that can be very hard. But we're asking God day by day to speak into our lives and just to allow us to be more patient. We've talked lots about the fact that we need to bear with each other and actually forgive each other. We need to be those people that we are trying to find every way in which we can to express forgiveness to others. I can think back to a time uh, where I was very, very angry with a friend. He, he, he was actually a fellow pastor. And uh, he, he asked my wife and I to come to work with him in South Carolina and uh, we were very, very excited, and so we moved to South Carolina because this is a great leader, incredible preacher, very, very gospel-centric. Here's a chance for me to grow and to learn, and he's like, I want to pour my life into you, and I want to disciple you and train you. I'm like, come on. And very shortly after I got there, a much larger church called and asked him to come, and so he left. And I was angry with him. I just said, hey, you, you betrayed me. You made me all sorts of promises you said that you would stay around, and now, I mean, I'm basically on my own here. And God convicted me deeply. God convicted me and just spoke to my heart and said, you know what? 
you're angry towards him. You're actually bitter towards him. You, you need to pray for John. So I begin to pray for John. Here's, here's my prayer. Lord, help him to see how wrong and terrible he was. Lord, thank you that I'm right in this situation. I'm telling you, for, for about a month, that, that really, that was it. And then God just, as I prayed for him, and I just made a strong commitment. I want to pray for him every day. Not five days a week. Not, I want to pray for him every day. And after a month or two, praying for him, my heart just, it just began to change. And after two or three months, it was like God prospered John in his new church. Use him in great ways. Thanks for his wife and his kids. And, and I prayed for him consistently for a year. And then I saw John. And it was amazing just to be able to say, brother, I've been praying for you um, a lot. And God has really changed my heart. I'm sorry for all those things I said as you walked out the door. Those were not helpful to you at all. It's all on me. Uh, and just to have that reconciliation. But that came through prayer. It came through the fact that God just really changed my heart through prayer. Just to bear with him and forgive him and love him. It's interesting that it says, and we're going we're, we're to have love which ties everything together. Love is the great emulsifier. You know, if, if you like to bake or cook, you know that there are those things you have to have that, that are like those bonding agents, right? Like flour or you know, flaxseed or you, you whatever it might be. One food I love that not everybody enjoys, some people think it's the worst food in the world, I love a really good, good sandwich with a healthy amount of mayonnaise. I know some of you, yes, some of you, thank you for that. Some, some of you have just completely tuned out. It's hard to make mayonnaise, as you know, right? Uh, because you've got this water and you've got some oil over here and you've got these different things that you have to mix together. And you know what? They, they don't mix. And the only way it works is if you have some egg. Egg is the great emulsifier. It holds everything together. It ties everything together. Love is the great emulsifier. It brings it all together. The only way to tie everything that we will walk through here together, it's only by love. And so Paul lays out for us, here are some things that you've got to do. These are the spiritual garments. And so doing these things, practicing these things, these things are a part of our sanctification, which is the process of trying to break up every area of just conformity to the world's standards and patterns and increasing transformation to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not sit back and just wait in sanctification. We actively participate because Christian maturity is not a passive exercise. So it's just not enough to say, hey, you are accepted through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's extremely important, but there's more. We, have to, we just have to also say, listen, you are delivered from the bondage of sin through the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And those are things that we have to have both of those parts. Because in sanctification, you do the work and you realize as the work is being done that it is ultimately God who did the work through you. It is the fact that we have been justified by grace and then sanctification flows out of that, and it's also by grace. You'll hear things very opposite, actually, in the Catholic Church. You're going to hear that, first of all, it is sanctification, and then justification flows out of sanctification. We believe that there is justification by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his grace, and then sanctification flows out of that. 
It's like justification, a man is drowning and you pull him out of the water. And then sanctification, you try to get that water out of the man. They're two very, very different things, but it is all based in grace. It is all based in grace. And then we come to these four important pillars, and these are the, the, the overall garments of transformation. These are the things that God will use to bring transformation in our life. So first of all, prayer. Chapter 4, 4, and then verse 2. Continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful and thankful. At the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for his word that we may declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We need to be a praying people. We need to be a people that absolutely stand up and we we say, Lord, we believe that you will change things through prayer. They've been scared in the Ukraine. And you probably heard this on the news. You probably heard part one. I guarantee you that you've not heard part two. Part one was, this is going to be absolutely horrible for us because winters are terrible in the Ukraine. And the fact that they have lost power and the fact that they're, they're oftentimes in the dark, the fact that they could easily freeze to death, it was going to be the most painful time in the world. I'm sure you heard things are going to get bad in the Ukraine because winter is coming. And so the church in the Ukraine begins to pray, God, help us. God, rescue us. God, come to us and help us in our time of need. Are you aware of the fact that this is the warmest winter in the Ukraine? in the past 142 years. That's incredible. That's God's power. That is God's grace. That is God working in a way that we could not even imagine. So we say, okay, Lord, I, I want to try to take five minutes three times a day. I want to try to find that time. And you might say, you know, it's just so hard. I'm struggling. I, it's, it's hard for me to even find a minute. What can God do with a minute? What can God do with a prayer for one minute? We're told in Isaiah chapter 37. I encourage you today, read this story in the scriptures. Because it's about Israel and things are really going well in Israel. And then a man comes to wipe them out. He's this Assyrian king, Sennacherib. And we all have those times in our life where things seem to be going well. And then comes Sennacherib. For you, it might be a lost job. It might be a spouse that walks out on you. It might be cancer. It might be hard times with your children. But we all come to that place where we have a Sennacherib that comes into our life. He brings 200,000 men. And he says, hey, Israel, we're, we're here to wipe you out. Let me just make clear. When I say wipe you out, I mean, we're going to destroy you. And if there's anybody left, they'll be drinking their own filth and they will drink their own urine. It's going to be bad for you guys. And Hezekiah is the king, and he heard this, and he said, we, got to find, we have to find somebody. Look for Isaiah, and they can't find him anywhere. So Hezekiah doesn't really know what to do. And so at that point, Sennacherib writes him a threatening letter and says, hey, here's what we're going to do to you. It's over for you. And he takes that letter, and he goes, and he lays it out before God, it says, and he prays. And I've prayed this prayer just time after time, just to time it. It's about 45 seconds. He prays about a 45-second prayer. And it says, and the next morning, 
the angel of the Lord came and put to death 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian troops. And Israel is rescued. 45-second prayer, 185,000 people dead. Because they were coming against God's people. Listen, if you say, I just don't have that much time to pray, listen, take the time you have because God can do incredible things through prayer. It's amazing how on January 1st, it's a little awkward. You know, hey, let's, let, let's pray more. Uh, you know what? That's, that's going to be a tough message. January 2nd, the entire nation is saying, let's pray. Why? Because of one player injured in a game, Demar Hamlin, goes down, and all of a sudden, everybody is saying, we need to be a praying people. Is that not staggering, the fact that God used that for his glory? It's incredible the way that God can do things that we would never even dream of. And Dan Orlovsky prays live on ESPN. And he's not criticized for it. He's not fired for it. He's actually commended for it. Whoever thought that we would come to that point. It's incredible how God can take things that we would think would be foolishness and use them for his glory. God used that injury for his glory. Because all of a sudden, everybody was saying, you know what, we need to be a praying people. Let's pray together. So every NFL player, pray for number three. It was incredible just to see the way that God stirred people's hearts. Now listen, we all know that that will eventually die down, but how amazing that God has blessed us with this season of saying, hey, you know what, it's, it's okay to pray. We need to be a praying people. We need to be a faithful praying people. You need to pray for the pastors in this church. You need to know that there is absolutely spiritual warfare. They're being attacked day by day. We need to pray that God will have the back of our pastors. We need to love them, and just to pray for them is just so very, very practical. So there's prayer. And then there's the word, the word of God. It says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and as you admonish each other with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love it. Dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly, which means that Jesus doesn't want to just pass through as a guest in your house. He wants to absolutely be the master of your house. So speaking of the Ukraine, years ago I had a chance to go uh, there uh, when I was only 15 years old with, with my uh, Mom and my dad, and we got to take in lots of Bibles. It's, it's, it's a long story, but it's a great story. Before we went, I spoke with, with, with a man that's over there all the time. And uh, he shared a story with me that has stuck with me my whole life. It was just so unbelievably powerful. He said that there's going to be some risk in this. You're going to take over these Bibles. That, that, that this is in 1975. And he said, you know, that there's some risk. He said, I was there just actually a week ago, and I was in this hotel room, and I had lots and lots of Bibles, and just all of a sudden, a maid walks in, and she saw these Bibles, and there was just this tense moment of, okay, she could walk out of the room and report me, and uh, I could be in lots and lots of trouble here. And trouble, I mean, you could chip ice in Siberia for like the next seven years. Anyway, and she walked up to him and said to him, um, could I have one of those Bibles? In Russian, obviously. Could I have one of those Bibles? And he said he thought about it and thought, gosh, if she takes a Bible, it could just actually be, I mean, like this evidence against me. But he just 
prayed a quick prayer and just felt comfortable, and he gave her a Bible and thought, okay, we'll, we'll see what happens. The next day, she came back, and she knocked on the door, and he opened it up, and she walked in, and she had the Bible. And she said, I just want you to know that I have not slept since I was here yesterday. I stayed up the entire night reading this Bible. Because I had been praying that God would give me a Bible night and day for the past 34 years. And yesterday was the first time I had ever even seen a Bible. Pray night and day for 34 years for God's Word. And we've got Bibles all over our house probably. Some might be very, very dusty. And yet God wants to take that word and he wants to drive it down into our hearts in a very deep way. The word of God is trustworthy and true. We can absolutely read it and know that it is straight for him. Now, if you're here and you're a, a skeptic, I am so glad you're here. That is powerful. Thank you so much for being here. And you might say, you know what, I understand what you guys are saying, but I just can't trust God's word because I... There just seem to be lots of problems with it. First of all, it's written by Christians, and they've got a very, very strong agenda. And uh, there's all these stories, and I have no idea if these stories are true. There's stories about the resurrection. There's stories about these miracles that take place. We have no way to actually prove those things and verify those things. I, I can't trust the Bible. And I would say, I think it takes more faith to not trust the Bible than it does to, to actually trust the Bible. I think there are three things that cause us to absolutely know the Word of God is true. First of all, the timing is too early if it's not true. The timing is too early if it's not true. Because every scholar believes that the Word of God was written 25 to 41 years, pretty much after the death of Jesus. And so you have that time frame in which it's written. So let's say that I say to you, hey, Years ago in Kansas City, in 1890, uh, there was a man that went to this one big, big tower, and he jumped off, and he didn't just fall to the ground. He actually floated around Kansas City. He didn't die, and he just kind of did this huge loop and went right back on that tower, and he was fine. And you would say, that's a crazy story. Can you prove that didn't happen? Well, no, we can't prove it didn't happen because there's no cameras back then, and uh, you, know, there's no, you know, there's no one that's actually alive who was there. So it just becomes an urban myth. It just becomes this legend, you know, that that happened. But if I said to you, hey, in 1995 in Arrowhead Stadium, the Chiefs were playing the Chargers, and there's a great return, and the Chiefs win a touchdown. As, as the guy runs into the end zone craziest thing, he also begins to levitate, and he floats around the stadium, and he comes back, and he lands. And you, you would say, that also is crazy. I can prove that's wrong. Because you could find people who were there. You could track down people that were at that game. There's thousands of people still alive in Kansas City that were at that game. And you could prove this isn't true. If you're going to make up things about Jesus, you should wait hundreds of years. But the fact that the word of God is written so soon after Jesus dies... There's thousands of people still alive that were a part of all those stories. Jesus fed 5,000 people. You know what? Lots of those people were still alive. He appeared to over 500 people after he was raised 
from the dead. There's going to be people still alive. If it wasn't true, it would have fallen apart way back when. If it's absolutely untrue, we would have known it was not true. It's interesting, every other religion, they wait hundreds of years. The Quran and Muhammad, it was hundreds of years later. So you can make up anything and it's going to become a myth. But with Jesus, it was absolutely true and it can be proven to be absolutely true. Number two, we can believe the word of God because Christians wrote and had an agenda. Because if you have an agenda, you would never include so many of the stories that are in the Bible. Listen, if I'm making this up and I want to just convince you, hey, the word of God is true, I want to leave out hundreds of stories that are in the Bible. I'm not going to have a story where I say, hey, there's, the, there's this guy, Jacob. He finally obeys God. He finally does what God wants him to do. He finally surrenders and submits to God, and God meets him, wrestles him, and physically beats him up and maims him for life. You're not going to make that up, people think. I don't know if I want to be a part of anything like that. You would never make up the story about Mary being young and unwed. You would never make that up. You would never have the first people at the birth of Jesus to be shepherds. They're the homeless. They're, they're, they're the outcasts. You would never make that up. There are so many stories in the Scripture that if you begin to read, you think, you know what? If I wanted to convince people that this was true, you, you would never make up so many of the stories Jesus, the hero of the story, the night before the cross, is praying and says, God, can you get me out of this? Really? You're going to include that? You're going to put that in the Bible? You would never include that if it wasn't true. And then third, there is a writing style that is just so very, very detailed that you would absolutely never, ever use. You see, when you have details, they're going to move the story along. But there are so many details in the scripture that don't help the story. And you think, why, why is that even in there? John 8, Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the, the first stone. And then he bends down and begins to write in the dirt. Now, there's been a million messages on what he wrote. Listen, it doesn't matter what he wrote. It's just, why, why would they even include that? Because it happened. Jesus comes back after the resurrection and he sees his disciples, and he calls them to shore, and, and there's a net, and there's a bunch of fish. And John says, says, hey, there's 153 fish. Why does it matter that there's 153 fish? There's been all, you're, listen, there's tons of messages. Well, it's a spiritual sign. Listen, it's no spiritual sign. There was 153 fish, so that's why he included it. Why would you include that? Because it happened. The style is far too detailed for it to not be true. Listen, we can absolutely believe that the word is true. We can hold on to these things. We believe in this church in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that Jesus has means and the overall authority to hold the word of God absolutely together. Now listen, we know there's pushback in our culture against the Bible. There is a modern-day culture. Sadly, there's a modern-day church. It says, hey, listen, if hell makes you uncomfortable, you know what? Just don't believe it. Jesus says the only way to God sounds way too, too exclusive. Discard it. Jesus' words in Matthew 19, the marriage is between a man and a woman. Just throw that away. It's not that important. You know, I don't want to believe that life begins at conceptions. Throw away Psalm 139. You can just easily discard things. 
But listen, rather than determining truth by human opinion, which is constantly changing, we need to submit and surrender to the actual truth, which has already been determined once and for all by God, the creator of all truth. So what is truth? What is, what's truth and what's so good that it's just unbelievable? The truth is that God is head over heels in love with you. The truth is that you melt God's heart. The truth is that God wants the very best for you. We need to be people that spend time in God's word. I encourage you, I implore you, spend time in God's word. Spend time and actually memorize God's word. A story that's kind of fun for me was I was 15 years old and I had a dear friend that I want to guess that there's going to be some people here that, that know, know, know him. His name is Ward Stoffer. And he was a good, good uh, friend starting off at about age 12. And he gave me a Bible when I turned 15 years old. And the Bible's right here. And all throughout my teen years, this was in my back pocket. I mean, this was in my back pocket. Now listen, it's a little weird because for some reason, I saw this as my Bible and my autograph book. So I would ask Christians to sign this Bible. So if you look through it, it's got Elizabeth Elliot. It's got all sorts of sports stars. It's got Craig Morton right here I just turned to, who was unfortunately on the Broncos for all those years. But anyway, I mean, I, I held on to this. And I can think back to a point in which I said, you know what? I need to memorize this word. And so I wrote in this, uh, in my, you know, my bad, bad handwriting, that I want to start to work on a passage, and I want to memorize this passage because I believe that it will transform my life. 8-15-1977, I was 16 years old. And the passage that I felt like God called me to memorize was Colossians 3, 1 through 4, 4, which is exactly what we're talking about here in this series. And I can think back to how that passage uh, became very much a part of my life. As I had this in my back pocket every day, I would go through that passage over and over again. Take time, think through the word, take time, and that, then, you know, just actually memorize it. Third, quickly, there's worship. There is worship. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since we were called to peace as one body and be thankful. It all leads to worship as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worship means that God invites us to meet with him and to actually engage God. My friend Matt Hurd says this, to worship is my active, all of life response to the worth of who God is and what he does. Friends, we have absolutely been created for worship. The world is not, okay, those who worship and those who don't. We all worship. We're all worshipers. The question is, do you worship things which have lasting value, or do you worship things which don't have lasting value? Trust me, this afternoon at about 5.30, we will all be worshiping in one sense, right? Okay, and then lastly, we need to be people about community, because we have been created for community. We have been created to help each other and to grow with each other and to help each other and to speak truth into to each other's lives. Because as you are in a community, you will come to know Jesus more and more. It's interesting because there were 
three friends that did lots of things, you know, together. Uh, Jack, Ron, and Chuck. And Jack and Ron and Chuck would meet each week, and they would drink a beer, and they would smoke, a, and they, they, then they would smoke a little bit, and then they would talk. And uh, these were the three uh, best friends in the world. And it's amazing because those three friends in the past 100 years have sold more books than any of the other three people in the world. Jack, Ron, and Chuck. Jack was a nickname for a guy named C.S. Lewis. Ron was the name of J.R.R. Tolkien. And Chuck was a man named Charles Williams. They were the best of friends. Fascinating, but Lewis at times felt like a third wheel, which is, you think, C.S. Lewis, a third wheel, he did it. And I mean, he writes about this. He says, you know, I just kind of felt like I was on the outside a little bit until there's a very, very sudden death of Williams. He dies very suddenly. And so Lewis thinks, now it's just me and Tolkien. And so now I want to really, really get to know him. So he began to spend more and more time with Tolkien. And he writes and he says, I'm very confused because I'm spending more time with Ron, and yet I feel like I know him less and less. I don't understand this. And then he thinks about it, and then he writes this just amazing truth. He says this, I've come to learn that I knew Ron a lot better in the context of friendship and just overall community, because there were certain parts of his personality that I can't draw out, but Chuck could. There were certain ways in which Chuck could make him laugh and just to make him, you know, think. And so he began to say, I began to learn that I can know you a lot better in the context of a community because different people draw out different parts of each other's personality. He said, if that's true of friendship, how much more so of God? That we can know God better in the context of a community because you're going to see God a little bit differently and you're going to draw out these facets of God that maybe I can't see. So you, you might have cancer and you're going to see God just a bit of a different way. You're trying to find a job. You're going to see God in just a bit of a different way. You might be actually single mom. You're going to see God in a different way. And as I'm around you and I hear the way that you see God, it's going to help me to grow to understand the Lord. That's why it's so important for us to be in small groups, to be in community, not to be in isolation. If you're at home this morning and you're watching this and you think, you know what, I'm very comfortable with the fact that I'm on my own couch every week. Uh, listen, we're glad that you're watching. But listen, we invite you here. And it's selfish on our part. Because we know that if you come and you're here with us actually face to face, as we get to know you, you're going to help us get to know the Lord better. Because we have been created for community. And then third and lastly, there are the clothes of godly grace. It's interesting because clothes are so much a theme all throughout the scripture. I mean, like you have Jacob who longs to be blessed. That's his whole thing in life. Just bless me, bless me. And so how does he try to get blessed? He dresses up in the clothes of Esau. And he thinks, if I dress up in Esau's clothes, my dad who is blind will think it's Esau. And then, then like you have Leah who longs to be blessed. And so what does she do? She dresses up like a bride in place of actually Rachel, and she swaps it out. And because she wants to be blessed, she puts on these clothes. So many people want to be so blessed by God, and how do we do it so often? We do it exactly like Jacob, exactly like Leah. We dress up in the clothes of somebody else. 
We dress up as people that we are not. We dress up as really good people, really good Christians, really generous Christians, really strong fathers, really, really good, good mothers. And God says, the clothes that I want you to put on are my clothes. It's these clothes. It's the clothes of transformation. It's interesting because, because you have Jacob who longs to be blessed. Why? Because he knows that the oldest son gets blessed. The firstborn gets blessed. And he's thinking, you know, I, I want the blessing of the firstborn. That's the thing that I long for in life. We're told in this book, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul tells us Jesus is the firstborn of creation. We're also told that Jesus Christ came and he took the curse that we might receive justification and life itself. The amazing thing is Jesus Christ came and took on our clothes. He dressed up in human flesh. And Jesus Christ took the curse in order that we might receive the blessing of the firstborn. Jesus Christ came and he dressed up like you and me so that we could know the blessing of the firstborn, so that we could have redemption, so that we could have hope, so that we could have life itself. It's incredible what Jesus Christ has done and the way that Jesus Christ has used those clothes. We're a lot more of the story of Ruth, where she starts off and she has on those clothes of a widow, and then the story ends and she has on the clothes of a bride. God wants to transform us, and these clothes that we put on, these are parts of that transformation. And the outcome, it's the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is absolutely incredible. This week, I'm with a man, and he shares just this, just this amazing story. He is in a very, 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 very strongly Muslim place, um, and they don't want Christians there. And he leads a Christian school, and he knows that it's very dicey because you could have, I mean, like, you could have the, the police could come and shut the whole thing down, and it would just be horrible. And so it's a little bit of a thing that's very, very undercover and such, but he leads a Christian school in a very, very strong Muslim country. Just about a week and a half ago, the police came. The Muslim police came, and he was just frightened as could be. And he said, I, I didn't know that you were coming. We had not prepared for this. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Is there anything that you need? Is there anything that we can do? And these Muslim men said this. We don't need anything from you, but there is a peace about this place that we have not found anywhere else in our country. Could we just sit here for a couple of hours and rest, and then we will leave? He was amazed, and that's exactly what happened. They verbalized, there is a peace here that we can't find anywhere else. There is a peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These truths are transformational truths. May we practice them in church, in small groups, in corporate ways, in ways that are also very, very individual. But may we practice these truths because by doing things, there is life transformation. And I'm praying that you would experience that transformation today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this amazing truth that you are with us, that you are for us. Father, thank you that sanctification flows out of justification, and we know that we want to be sanctified day by day, 
And that's a way that we, we, we get to actually participate with you. And we get to do these things together, Lord. And even as we do it, we look back and we see your grace is all over it. Uh, Father, help us to be people of prayer. Help us to be people that absolutely believe your word. Help us to be people that know that your word is, is true. And then we could hold on to your word. Father, help us to be people of worship. That we, Lord, in worship, we just openly surrender ourselves to you. And Father, may we be people about community. We know Satan would love for us just to be isolated and to be off on our own. Father, now as we have the chance to come to partake of this Lord's Supper, we thank you for the amazing gift that it is. That this meal is for those who love Jesus, for those who walk after you. And Father, for those who have put on the garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and dressed up like us and that he took the curse in order that we might receive the blessing of the firstborn. Father, we have been amazingly blessed by you. So remind us of this. In this moment, this week, and day by day as we walk with you, we give you the glory and the praise in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you're ready, you come.